Welcome to The Workplace, the program about how to get into, get along, and get ahead at work, produced and presented by me, NND. This episode concludes a two-part discussion with artist Wesley Goatley on AI work and the environment through his installation titled Newly Forgotten Technologies, which is featured in AI Who's Looking After Me, an exhibition by the Science Gallery London in collaboration with arts organization Future Everything. AI Who's Looking After Me is on at Science Gallery London until the 20th of January 2024. Please visit london.sciencegallery.com, futureeverything.org, and wesleygoatley.com for more information. And to keep up with this and all the other work and workplace-related conversations that take place here on The Workplace, please connect with me using hashtag WorkplaceNND. AI season here on The Workplace continues with the generous support of ARC Club, the fabulous co-working space that is more than just a workspace. Please visit arc-club.com. Wesley, welcome back to The Workplace. Just give us a brief reminder of who you are and what you do. Thanks for having me back. I'm Wesley Goatley. I'm an artist and researcher based here in London. My practice is looking at how a range of digital technologies, including AI, relate to their hidden histories, hidden contexts around them. With AI specifically, I'm interested in the kind of hidden environmental costs, the hidden impact on communities of labor practitioners and just general humans, but also the kind of myths about the future that it seems that society tells itself through its technologies, specifically right now through a technology like AI. So in this episode, we're going to be focusing on automation and labor in the context of the work you do and in relation to your installation in the current exhibition at the Science Gallery. But before we get into that, I wanted to ask, in the last episode, when you explained e-waste and you painted a visual for us about those scrap heaps, and even just of your installation, I wanted to know, were you influenced at all by Steven Spielberg's AI? I don't know if you've seen that movie from 20 years ago, but there was a scrap heap of e-waste. I now know the word for it. I didn't know the proper term. Were you at all influenced by that? No, that's interesting. The only thing I remember about that film is the amazing design of the spaceship at the end with the aliens. I remember thinking at the time, oh, that's really clever design thinking uh, approach to, uh, to, to spaceship design. So no, that would be very interesting to compare the dreaded future of uh, e-waste uh, as um, conceived of 20 years ago with what's happening now. Obviously, there's a lot of examples of you know things where science fiction really influences the technological development, mostly through things like Star Trek inspiring people to make tablet computers or smart speakers, etc., etc. So there is definitely a connection between science fiction and anybody working in foresight or futures spaces, as I kind of tangentially am these days. But no, no, I will have to go back and have a look at that and see what people predicted right and what they didn't, because I think that those are very interesting things. Also in part one, when you were discussing labor and invisible labor and how labor is valued, and uh, we were talking about it in relation to artists and whether their contributions are respected. And I wanted to mention then that the pandemic gave us a wake-up call or a reminder 
as to the jobs that really underpin society, that form the foundation of society. Those were the most important things. Those were the things that we really couldn't live without, those on the front line. And it's interesting how in the way that society is constructed, these jobs are not valued or respected. Yes, and I think that the pandemic is a really good example of that because I think for a lot of people, it pointed out to them the hidden forms of labour which underpin a lot of kind of quote-unquote sort of seamless processes, for example, that just kind of make the cities and kind of life work. I've done a lot of work in the past thinking about logistical infrastructures and their politics and these kind of like large scale global systems that have lots of human bodies involved in them but are sort of designed to be hidden and kept at distance from us, you know, like the kind of the way that freight shipping happens, like much further away from the coastline than, you know, than other forms of sort of recreational sea craft go. And then, you know, most freight trains run at night, for example. So these are all things that are kind of kept physically distanced to us, but do underpin the fact that you can get an asparagus at any time of the year, et cetera, et cetera. So I think there's a lot about the modern world that has a great deal of quote unquote invisible systems, but invisible really just means things that people either don't really want to look at because they're somewhat painful or uncomfortable things to look at or are things that are designed to have the appearance of seamlessness much like a lot of AI technologies for example and digital technologies in general while actually obscuring a great deal of human labor in that and I think the pandemic really did that I remember that at one point when looking at statistics of deaths from or with COVID that week was quite early on in the pandemic i remember seeing that in i think it was in the borough of southwark in london that there was one week where technically the sort of deadliest job was bus driver because of the amount of deaths of bus drivers that week from covid pre-vaccine so i mean it's just that you know a drop and obviously you know there are many more older people or, or people with comorbidities or other conditions that suffered as well but it sort of went to just highlight briefly the sort of risks that frontline workers were under and just how many jobs there are that kind of like continue to make somewhere like London run. Unfortunately, as much as people were clapping out of the window for the NHS, obviously it doesn't really seem to have improved a lot of what is one of the greatest things about living in this country, which is the NHS, you know, it hasn't really improved a lot of that. So whether or not the lessons were learned from the pandemic already by this point, I think most people would say they haven't necessarily been learned. You mentioned the impact of uh, AI on the environment what i'm not clear on and i hope you can clarify for me is should there be a distinction between the impact of ai on the environment and tech in general the hardware i'm not clear if there is some kind of uh, additional impact or is it all one and the same it's definitely all one and the same because ai is a sort of a catch-all term for an approach of doing computation, really. You know, there's not like a technology that's just AI and not also a computer. Everything's run on computers. And so the same data centers that make Amazon's website work and coordinate its logistical empire are the same data centers that are doing at least some of the work in doing their kind of quote, the tricks of their AI systems, like the Alexa voice service, for example. So those two things are definitely all woven right in together but it's interesting you know you highlight that distinction of thinking about those things as two separate elements 
And that is indicative of kind of what I was just talking about, things that are made to appear to be seamless or that their kind of mechanisms are kind of made invisible. Because when people imagine AI, if I ask the listeners at home to close their eyes now and then just imagine, just you know, put in your head, try to picture what AI looks like. So just, you know, a couple of seconds, just picture what AI looks like with your eyes closed. Now, I'll do a magic trick. Why is it that so many of you have thought about a blue brain floating in space, blue zeros and ones floating in the air, a human hand touching a robot hand in a picture, or a robot made of white plastic? Because I can guarantee you that loads of you have done that, right? And maybe that if, if you were playing along there, you might have had a little bit of that as well. But why is it that, uh, that so few of you probably pictured a picture of a computer when I said picture what AI is? Most people wouldn't picture a laptop or even a desktop computer. And so there is a huge disconnect in culture between the technology itself and the mechanisms that underpin it. And that's a huge problem when those mechanisms have such a outsized environmental impact. For example, the average data center in the US consumes about the same amount of water per day as a town of 50 to 60,000 people because those technologies get very hot and when they get hot, they slow down and break. And so you need to spend a lot of money just cooling them down. That's where all the water largely goes to is to, is to run cooling systems to cool down those computers that are constantly churning. It's also why they're buried underground typically because obviously it's cooler underground in most places, but also why there's a big push to try to open up parts of like the Arctic and Greenland to data centers because it will make calling them even cheaper. And there's genuinely quite a lot of push to try to make that happen more than it already is. So the disconnect between the kind of material reality of something like AI and its environmental effects are vast. It's not just a sort of a semantic problem or doesn't just reveal how little you studied computer science at school or something. It really actually means something. You know, these things have a great material effect on the planet. And that's one of the reasons why I try to foreground that materiality in the sort of work that I do. I did play along, and I suppose the category that I would fall into of the list that you gave is the white plastic, but actually what I went straight to was, um, I think, that Scarlett Johansson film, is it called Her? You know, like with a half computer head kind of thing. That was the image that came up for me. And the reason this happens for the general public, that is people who are not techies, who are not geeks, we are just consumers. We don't make the tech. We don't understand how tech works. It's because the corporations, and I suppose the media in tandem with the corporations, this is the image that we are fed. You know, like if you hand me an apple and tell me this is an apple, or if I hand you a Caribbean fruit that you'd never seen before and I tell you this is a pomsi tea, for example, and you'd never seen. Someone showed you a thing and told you this is what it is. What are you going to think? That is what it is. But what I want to hone in on is uh, when you mentioned the in the previous episode about the work of uh, the global majority. Can we hone in on that a bit now? As we were talking about the undervaluing of work and so, is there anything else you want to tell us around that? Yeah, and I'm glad you brought us back to that because it relates very closely to what I was just saying about 
the function of data centers and the kind of hidden nature of how AI works. So there's a big component of how most generative AI systems that we have today, which would include technologies such as ChatGPT, which a lot of people are familiar with, but also a lot of kind of very everyday technologies like Google Autocomplete and a range of other kind of quote unquote predictive tools that are meant to kind of guess what comes next, for example. So anything that involves labeling images is an interesting discussion in this context. So the internet and AI systems specifically tend to be full of images. They're databases for something like Midjourney, which is designed to scan a big database of images and sort of generate new images in a kind of a collage effect from that old database. The images in them tend to be labeled. So a picture of a dog will be a human has written the label dog on it in order to build a system that knows what a dog is. Because obviously a computer does not A, know anything. Computers aren't sentient, they don't have consciousness and arguably never will. But you can train a computer to match the word dog with a picture of a dog. That's different from it knowing what a dog is, but it just means that you've put kind of these two columns in a database next to each other. So they're now associated. And that's kind of how these systems work. But someone has to write dog on it. And then you can't do that with a computer because you get to this Russian doll situation where if you automate a computer to do that job, you had to originally have trained that computer with human inputs to know what a dog is, etc, etc. So just kind of keep going down. So what happens is humans do that job. Humans do the job of labeling those images. And these databases that underpin big AI systems all over the world have got millions upon millions of images that have been labeled by human hands. Now, there's a number of different ways that this happens. Amazon have a platform called Mechanical Turk, which is a sort of a weird in-joke about the kind of history of automation, but it's a story for another day. But what the platform is, is it pays people all over the world very, very, very small amounts of money to do very, very small jobs. So you might get paid like one pence per image to write what is in the image in two words. And, you know, you, it tends to be people doing this sort of work live in generally like socioeconomically deprivated areas of the world, not just the global majority or the global south, but also in the global north. Like there's a lot of people in the south of the US, for example, do it. And they're basically just asked to label as many of these pictures in a row as possible. So the kind of intelligence behind artificial intelligence is human intelligence, but it's also humans being paid very, very, very little and encouraged to do it as quickly as possible. And with very little oversight, there's going to be very few people checking your work because you're paid so little that no one's paid to oversee that. So the kind of intelligence behind it has a lot of question marks as to its validity to begin with. And that's kind of one way of doing it. And another way is through large scale companies who label this sort of data for a lot of countries around the world. So there is a company in Nigeria called Samasource, who is quite famous for doing this, who employ largely local people to label images for a lot of tech companies around the world, including China is a really big customer for this, as well as parts of Europe and the US that will label these images. And one of the things they do specifically is they go through ChatGPT's databases and try to find all of the worst, most offensive things that have been written online by anybody and therefore has made it into these massive databases of text that ChatGPT has built on and all this kind of history of text that's been shared online. So these people go through these massive databases and they're paid to read the worst things you can possibly imagine having been written online 
which is basically the worst things that any human has ever written ever, you know, because the internet is both sublime and horrid, as we all know. And so they're paid to basically screen out that information from these databases so that when ChatGPT gets released to the public, it's very polite, it's very clean, you know, doesn't have naughty words in it. It won't swear at you or present violent sexual imagery to you through text. But how it does that is because a human has been paid about just over $2 an hour to read these things all day long over and over again over again for their you know nine to five day job so obviously the emotional impact on those people is huge the company has a large investment in kind of mental health support for its workers um summer source but there's a lot of reports coming out of it that the mental health teams themselves are massively overloaded because they're dealing with people who are having to deal with such trauma of, of having to look at these things and every image generation database has had the same sort of process gone through it but for the worst images you can imagine that someone would post online what a horror i wasn't aware of this i'm glad at least chat gpt and others like it are being sanitized because i knew that there are people who filter and clean up the stuff but i hadn't really thought of the mental health impact on them oh my goodness that is very interesting i wonder is there anything else you want to tell us about automation because in the first part of our conversation you mentioned a contrast between the sleek sophisticated experience we are having of automation where smart virtual assistants put on the lights put on the music do whatever for us and uh, the reality behind the global majority making that happen is there anything else you wanted to tell us on automation in relation to labor yeah and so this is a good time to kind of come back to art i think because you know i'm very interested as a practitioner and i also teach art as well and I'm, i'm privileged to teach people from around the world at masters level and above about the kind of work that i do and that other people do in these sorts of spaces and something that comes up again and again at the moment when i'm working with like younger people again from all over the world is the anxieties around what the job market will look like in the future for them and obviously there's a narrative around technology like mid journey for example which generates images from text you can put in but it's kind of a, a quick way of generating a fairly boring illustration realistically about how when it becomes so quick and easy to generate images and with a bit of a refining of a text prompt you can normally get you know a fairly serviceable image that might only need a little bit of touching up in photoshop for it to look like the product of human labor which again is not surprising given that the system is built on a lot of human labor both in the kind of design of the technology but also in the databases that go into them where they've had all these images screened but also the images were produced by humans originally so with a tool like that it would imply that you know we don't need illustrators anymore don't need visual artists because you know the machines would do it all but the history of automation teaches us that every technology that seeks to kind of automate or claims that it removes humans from the process has never truly done that all it's done is to make it so that what used to be a specialist skill that took a lot of years of training and was done by specialists who were paid a sort of a specialist wage for their work it means that that same work can now be done by somebody who's much lower skilled does not have that specialism and therefore is not expected to be paid as much so it's not really about automating the 
task and removing humans from it. It's about creating wage competition between these two separate groups so that then the employer can say to the specialist, you shouldn't get the same wage you used to because now we've got this loom and the worker on the loom will be paid much less to do the same job as you, the expert weaver used to do and so you can still have a job but i'm going to pay you much less for that job because now there's competition i could get a slightly worse product or much worse product meaningfully but the existence of that system and that capacity for that wage competition to exist creates this dynamic and it creates this challenge to the value of someone's labor and that's the thing with ai automation is that none of the things that are framed as being kind of like automated or as like being done without humans none of them work without humans you know the example i just gave that chat gpt and all those other systems require loads of human labor to create and deploy and maintain but also anybody who's used chat gp to try to help write an email or something like that you know that like it can't really just generically output something or if it does and you don't have to edit it at all it's a very rare instance you as the user of it still has to do that human labor and so this whole promise of automation is false and those things are not magic and they can't magically do these kind of tricks that their manufacturers claim but they don't need to is the point you know all they need to do is create that situation create the conditions where your labor can be framed as being worth less than it used to and again this is not a new observation and there are many making it around ai but with artists specifically you know i'm always talking to them about the the fact that, well, if we're going to move past this, when we're looking at the fact that these systems can only really spit out images that have come before, you know, they're really good at spitting out very generic images because they've got loads of examples of them in their database. You know, they've got a billion images of a smiling white woman eating salad, for example, right? So if you type in to ChatGPT, smiling white woman with blonde hair eating salads, you'll get millions of them because the entire advertising industry is just already full of that image. But if you try to make something kind of genuinely new, they will always fail. You know, they might fail in an interesting way, but they will still fail at that. And so I talk to young practitioners or earlier career practitioners and say, look, you know, the the point is not to avoid these technologies because kind of you can't because that particular Pandora box doesn't get closed again. Once you kind of produce a technology that devalues labor in that way, it sticks around because that benefits capital for it to do so. So it, it's not like NFTs that just disappear after everyone gets bored of them. Right? So this is a technological shift that I think we're going to be dealing with for a long time. But the point is to not say, well, I refuse to use these technologies, but it's instead to be like, well, how about we try to make things that can't be automated by these systems that we haven't seen before? which comes back to the point that we talked about in the last episode, which was about the need and the kind of the role and purpose of artists to present the world back to people in new and interesting ways. You know, it's one of the most exciting things that art can do. And I think that actually, you know, this moment of automation presents an interesting challenge to artists to really push themselves to do that, to, you know, make work that isn't easily automatable and that doesn't kind of fit in the previous categories of what was considered to be artistic work and to instead be using this moment to say, okay, well, then we need new things then. We need new forms of practice that don't exist in those databases and they defy that form of quantification you know it's a kind of a simplistic approach and i don't think it solves everything but it's a starting point it's a starting point that gets us past the misery and gets us into action and creation and that's why i like that line of thinking do you think what you've just said can be done yes absolutely humans cannot be stopped from making new things but it's more about setting an urgency 
that we haven't necessarily had before. But humans will always take something new and do things that it was never designed to do. It's one of the beautiful things about humans and our practice. You've given us a solution, which is artists need to create stuff that cannot be replicated. And uh, now I will go on a quest to find out how that can be done. I'm very intrigued by it. But earlier on, you also mentioned emotional labor. And uh, in one of your works, I had read a reflection of yours on the development of emotional tonal components in virtual smart assistants. So like I understand two or three years ago, they've made it so that these virtual smart assistants can replicate emotion. And there's a quote you had, which is, what does a certain type of person who works in a certain type of industry think about what emotion sounds like? And I would like you just to wrap up by sharing your thoughts on what you really meant by that and the general implications in the broadest context of work. To go back to to the first point of your question, what can we do about it? And now we know that impact. A really fundamental thing is if you want to use those sorts of tools, don't use a platform owned and operated by somebody else that you do not have ownership over. You know, like Midjourney, for example, there are many, many kind of open source tools to use. You can build your own databases, which becomes its own really fascinating. Wesley, let me stop you and tell you, under no circumstances am I going to build my own database. It's just not going to happen. (laughs) So what's the alternative to that alternative? Fair enough. Um, You can use out-of-the-box databases. You do not need to be a computer scientist for this. I'm not. I've never studied computer scientists, but I have made it my practice for a long time. I'm not particularly computationally minded. I find it all very, very hard, but I still manage to do it. And so do millions of other people who don't have particularly special skills. So, you know, there is loads of support online to do this sort of work if you're interested in using these sorts of tools in your art practice. It is more of a challenge than just using a website you load up, yes but art has always been a kind of a never-ending lifelong process of exploring your tools for making art and how you make art with them you know there's never been a shortcut in any art practice and every art practice is necessarily always unfinished and ongoing and you're always learning right up to the moment when you're dead basically and that's again one of the beautiful things about art practice so there are very meaningful steps forward where we can start pushing past these big companies dominance in this space and start thinking about what are these tools aside from their presence in the kind of corporate landscape? How do we take those things and use them for ourselves and not give forms of profit and forms of labor to those companies? There's loads of opportunities to do that if you just look past the kind of most obvious outcomes we get presented. On your discussion about emotional tone components, you know, that comment that I made was talking about when technology companies try to make tools that say this technology detects whether or not someone's happy based on a picture of their face or a sound in their voice. These are being used all over the world already, mostly in work context, just to try to judge whether or not a um, employee is happy and therefore productive. You know, these are meaningful things happening all over the world. What I was drawing attention to with, with that is the absurdity of saying that an emotion can be quantified. And that something that I tell people a lot is that, you know, anybody who claims to be making a technology that can detect emotions, you know, we as humans can't do that. So you cannot get humans to build a technology to do that. Because obviously, even if I smile at you, you don't know whether or not I'm happy. You know, I can smile just to hide the fact that I'm sad. In the same way, laughing can be to hide embarrassment or shame, uh, an expression of joy or humor. Humans are way more complicated than that. What I like about this discussion is it reminds us that things like emotions and so much about human experience is necessarily uncomputational in the sense that it cannot be computed. It can't be reduced to numbers. It can't be a binary. There is no 
all truth of these things there's no like true emotional uh, true emotion you know if there was a technology that could be used to detect whether or not someone was happy or sad it would either be on every surface in our life and we would use it in every single social situation or it would be banned like a nuclear weapon or a chemical because it'd be too dangerous. So I'm always talking about in my work, these little claims made by tech companies and how just a little bit of critical thinking not only unravels those lies and effects, you know, for profit, but also gets us thinking about what's really meaningful about humans. It moves us past the computational discussion and gets us just thinking about who are we and what do we do with our tools and why do we want to use them in this way? Why is it that emotions are so essential and people are so anxious about trying to detect them? You know, why is that? And that, that, that asks many, many more fascinating questions than even the existence of a magic motion detection machine if that did exist, it would be not as interesting as that whole set of questions of us interrogating ourselves and interrogating what these things mean to us. You know, that's the interesting stuff here. Before we close, tell us anything else you'd like to share. Thank you very much, everyone, for your time and attention and to hear more about these sorts of stories around labor and around AI and around myths. They are really embedded in the work that I have on exhibition right now at Science Gallery London. The work's called Newly Forgotten Technologies and will be on show there until the end of January. And that's it for this episode of The Workplace, the program about how to get into, get along and get ahead at work, produced and presented by me, N.N.D. This concluded a two-part discussion on AI, work and the environment with the artist Wesley Goatley in relation to his installation titled Newly Forgotten Technologies in the exhibition AI Who's Looking After Me on at Science Gallery London. Please visit london.sciencegallery.com, futureeverything.org and wesleygoatley.com for more information. My thanks to all those who have made this program possible and especially to ARC Club, with whose support AI season here on The Workplace has been realised. Please visit arc-club.com if you're after fabulous co-working space that is more than just a workspace. This program was first broadcast on Community Arts Radio Station Resonance 104.4 FM, which is a charity. Please support us at resonancefm.com forward slash donate and on Patreon. And to keep up with this and all the other work and workplace related conversations that take place here on the workplace, please connect with me using hashtag workplace NND. And we close with sounds composed from the machine learning voices of Alexa and Siri. Thank you so much for listening. As always, it's been a pleasure being in your company. Till next time, keep finding new and better ways to keep working.